Good morning. Here is the audio recording of October 10th sermon, Romans 10, 14 to 21. Special shout out to Larry Dobson and my mom, who are about the only people I expect to listen to this. Enjoy Romans 10, verses 14 and 21. This is the service from October 10th. From the text. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, Lord, I pray you would bless the teaching of your word and give grace to those listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever heard it said, there's no ultimate truth? I was in college when I first heard this statement. It was rattling. I didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't sure how to argue against it. I, I knew that the Christian view of God was true. And I knew that rejecting truth or making truth relative wouldn't work in the real world. I remember telling my buddy on the dorm floor, look, you can tell me that truth is relative. You can tell me there's no ultimate truth, but a semi on the highway is truly there. And if you don't believe me, go stand in front of it. And no matter what you want to think about it, that ultimate truth will wake you up. But, but, but how was I supposed to actually argue against the worldview? There's no ultimate truth. And Hard then, hard now. Evidently, this belief has become more and more common among friends and neighbors. It's perplexing. How should Christians respond? Should we try talking about the Bible and how we can know it's really true? Or should we talk about the empty tomb and why that's true? Should we talk about the afterlife, how there's really something coming? But of course, if a person rejects ultimate truth, what's the point of any of those talking points? Turns out, Philosophers have a term for a statement like my dorm buddy was making. It's called an antimony. It's an antimony. Google defines an antimony as a paradoxical or intellectually contradicting statement. And in this antimony, there is no ultimate truth. There is, on the one hand, a truth claim. That's the statement being made, that there's no ultimate truth. But on the other hand, it's a rejection of truth. That's an antimony. Had I known this philosophical term, I suppose I could have argued it, but it's not just secular worldviews that have antimonies, 
Some see an antimony in the Old Testament when God describes himself as righteous and just, punishing for generations while simultaneously being merciful and loving, blessing for generations. How can both of those truth claims be true? Well, I don't want to overwhelm you with all these antimonies this morning, but as it turns out, we find an antimony in our text, Romans 10, 14 to 21. What Paul does is he unpacks for the Roman church two truths that seem mutually exclusive. But if all truth is God's truth, then how are we to resolve the apparent paradox in our text? That's what we're going to do today. Unpack that paradox. But first, we've got to make sure we're clear on what the two truths are. The first truth is that God is sovereign over salvation. This is what we have been tracking from the beginning of Romans 9 until our text today. We could call it big God theology. Paul's explained how salvation works since chapter 1 through the end of Romans 8, that we're all sinners born under the judgment of God, and the only hope for salvation is through Jesus and at the end of Romans 8, we, we are given this promise that's good as gold, that, that, that whoever God predestines, he calls, and those he calls, he justifies, and those he justifies, he glorifies. And, and, and at the end of Romans chapter 8, we can imagine some sitting in the Roman church wondering, well, okay, Paul, like, that's great and all that those God calls are going to be saved, but what about all the Jews who it seems God has called but have rejected him? Paul, if God's promise is good as gold, why do so many Jews continue to reject the gospel? Paul's answer is big God theology. God's sovereign over salvation. And while that creates all sorts of angst for those unfamiliar with Romans 9, Paul's clear. God's word is not failed. That's Romans 9, 6. God's mercy is not unjust. That's Romans 9, 14. And if anybody's in heaven, according to Paul, it's because God has save them. Now, I know I've jumped right into the deep end, and and I hope you're still following, because it's important to understand that in heaven, nobody's going to be walking around beating their chest saying, yes, I'm so awesome, and that's why I'm here. Now, the first truth of Paul's antimony is this. God is sovereign in salvation. But, But the second statement in Paul's antimony, the one our text this morning really brings out, is very hard to stomach. Here it is. Humans are responsible for rejecting salvation. Humans are responsible for rejecting salvation. Well, again, good morning. If you're listening new to our church, if you've never studied the theology of election or predestination, what a week you've picked to listen to this sermon But as is our normal pattern, we preach whatever the text says. And this morning, we're in the middle section of Paul's letter to Rome. God's sovereignty and salvation and humans' responsibility in response. This morning, I want you to understand what Paul is arguing for. And I want to press this point home in our lives in two practical ways. So there's going to be three points in the sermon. The first point is going to cover our text. Point number two is application. Point number three is application. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's get to work. First, let's look at the text. God's heart for the Jews. Big idea number one, God's heart for the Jews. From the text, look at Romans 10, 14, and we find this 
theological chain. Look in 14 and 15, we see Paul writing that how will they call on him in whom they not believed? How are they to believe and they never heard? How are they to hear if somebody doesn't preach? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? And what we see is these links he's making. And it reminds us of, of links back in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, where Paul says, all who call on Jesus will ultimately be saved. But, but this in Romans 10, 14 and 15 is a theological chain connecting those who preach Jesus. Let me careful clarify though, because this idea of preach in verses 14 and 15, it, it's not probably the word you might think it is. Uh, many of us, when we think preach, we, we would just think of people who are preachers. Yeah, our church has a preacher. And so I guess this is Paul writing to that person specifically, but, but actually in the original language, this word that we translate as preach in our text means to proclaim or herald good news. Like Jesus said in John 20, 21, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you. We understand from this verse, God sends heralds or proclaimers to share his gospel. And we can figure out the point then of, of the relationship between those who will hear and believe and, and be saved by Jesus with those who preach or herald or proclaim the gospel by looking at the argument backwards. If you, if you start at 15, you can see that Paul's describing that there are people who are sent out, those who are ambassadors of Jesus. And those who are sent out into 14 are to preach. They're to proclaim and share Jesus. And, and, and when they do that, there will be those, middle of 14, who hear the message. And some who hear will even believe. Repent of their sins and trust in Christ. That's the beginning of the 14. What, what Paul's saying is this, hey church, there's this chain of events that, that begins with Jesus sending us and it ends with new believers calling on Christ and being saved. With this sequence in mind then, Paul brings us back to thinking about the Jews. For the Roman church was wondering, well, what do we make of these Israelites who don't believe today, seeing as Paul has been arguing that the Jews are, are, are called by God, it seems like, and should be saved. What Paul explains then is the Jews' current situation, verse 6. But they, the Jews, have not all obeyed the gospel. We could say they've, they've not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed what he has heard from us? So, so Paul's clarifying that while some who hear the gospel will believe it, that doesn't mean everyone who hears will automatically believe. And he even quotes from Isaiah 53.1 to make his point. There are some who heard but did not believe. We might paraphrase verse 16 to the Roman church like this. Hey, Roman Christians, just because some Jews heard the gospel doesn't mean they're automatically going to believe. In fact, Isaiah told us that's not going to happen. We're to expect that Jews would hear but disbelieve. Because verse 17, faith, it's going to come from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, but the people are going to hear and not believe. Now, stick with me. I know this is dense, but I want you to get it. Because at this point, the Roman Christians likely would have 
wondered, yeah, okay, but if, if the Jews don't really believe, maybe they never really heard, or maybe they really didn't understand. Because, man, if they really heard, they would have got it. But that's why Paul says in 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. If you're looking at the text in front of you, you'll notice there's a quote there at the end of verse 18. It's Paul quoting from Psalm 19.4. Psalm 19 is a, is a psalm that begins talking about how wonderful God's creation is and how his glory can be seen in all of the beauty of the creation and how committed God is to making sure everyone who has been created as a person on earth can see his glory. And, and, and it's like this, Paul's, Paul's leveraging Psalm 19 to make this point that God is so committed to his glory that the whole earth is full of it. And so you can trust that, that God's committed to the Jews hearing the gospel message. For if, if he wants the whole world to see his glory, you better believe God wants the Jews to hear the gospel message. So the Roman Christians couldn't conclude, well, maybe the Jews didn't hear it. No, they heard it. But then some Roman Christians might think, well, maybe they just misunderstood. Maybe they don't understand it, which is why Paul says in 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I'll make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who didn't seek me. I've shown myself to those who didn't ask for me. All right, here, Paul's quoting both Moses in Deuteronomy 32 and then Isaiah in chapter 65 to make the point from the Old Testament that the Jews had understood and yet still rejected Jesus. To summarize, here's Paul's point. There are no excuses for the Jews. The Israelites have been told the gospel. The Israelites have heard the gospel. The Israelites have understood the gospel, and yet the Israelites do not believe the gospel. And so in the context of Romans 9 and 10, while God is sovereign over salvation, the Jews are responsible for rejecting God's gospel message. And that's Paul's point. For them then, Israelites are responsible for rejecting salvation. In today's language, we could say, based on the text, humans are responsible if they've rejected salvation. Now, at this point, my guess is there might be some who hear this conclusion and think, man, Paul is being harsh. Good grief, he's revealing an angry side of God. And I think for some who do believe the gospel, they might read this and think to themselves, yeah, I believe the gospel and I am better than any of those Israelites who've rejected it or anybody that I know who's understood and heard the gospel but said, no, thanks, I am better than them. But that would be wrong to think we're better than anybody else because we've believed. And in fact, Paul doesn't end this section with a harsh note on God. Rather, look how Paul paints the final picture of God, a reference from Isaiah 65 too. 
Look at Romans 10, 21. But of Israel, God says, all day long, I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Look at the way Paul puts it here. Notice what the father is doing. Again, this is from Isaiah 65 too. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What kind of person holds their hands out in this manner? I think it's the picture of God the Father holding his hands out in invitation. He's, he's looking at people he loves, people he handpicked from Abraham, a people he saved from Egypt, the people he lovingly gave his law to. And despite their rejection, look at God's heart for a disobedient and contrary people. His hands are still outstretched. God is still waiting. God's heart is for the Jews. And here it is then in Romans 10, 21, a resolution to the antimony. Yes, God's sovereign in salvation. And yes, the Israelites are responsible for rejecting God's gospel. And yet God's heart is still for his people. Like a dad who's been waiting and longing for his estranged and hurting child to come home. This is God not sitting on his throne, arms crossed, brow furrowed, ready to zap every unbelieving Jew he can find with lightning. No, God's heart is full of love. He wants his people home. Here's a beautiful picture of God's heart. Reminds me of Isaiah 55, verse six. Seek the Lord while ye he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So that's our first big idea. God's heart for the Jews. Do you see how God's heart brings clarity to the antimony from this second part of Romans? God's heart for the unbelieving Jews to be saved is seen at the end. And that's the heart of our text. That Paul's sermon in a sentence from Romans 10, 14 to 21 is this. God loves his people. That's rock solid. Good as gold. Take it to the bank. God loves his people. Now, having done the heavy lifting in this text... I want to spend the rest of our time, two applications. Our last two big ideas, press this home. Move with me to the second big idea, this application, God's heart for the world. We saw God's heart for the Jews, big idea number one. Big idea number two, God's heart for the world. Well, Paul's primary point in our text was to reveal to the Roman church God's Heart for the Jews, we do find an implication from verses 14 and 15 that I want to draw out for us. I think it's crucial for us today. Here it is. God sends his gospel people out into the world to herald good news. And like we said earlier, the original word 
preach or preaching in this section isn't just aiming at a few guys who get up in a worship service on a Sunday morning on a stage and teach from the Bible. Rather, the original word means to proclaim or to be a herald. I love how pastor and preacher Tim Keller explains it. A herald made announcements. A herald was, in a sense, a living newspaper. Heralds were a major means of information. and They made announcements in the marketplace and on the streets. So the word preach doesn't merely mean what it is today. Heralds operated in the streets. Here's my point. God loves the world today just like he loved the Jews then and as early as Moses in the first books of the Old Testament to Isaiah and the end of the Old Testament from the beginning of the New Testament to the end, God's heart is for all peoples, all nations, all tongues, and all tribes to know him. In the book of Acts is an example. We watch as the gospel expands from the Jews in Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In fact, the Roman church likely started after those who heard Peter preach the gospel in Acts chapter 2 returned to the city. So for all of us who now have the message of the gospel, who have believed the message of the gospel, God has given us an incredible privilege and responsibility. You and I are to be his heralds. We're to be God's living newspapers, walking around, sharing with anyone who will listen and understand God's arms are wide open to all who would call on him. Tell your friends and your neighbors, God is a loving and gracious father. He wants us to come home. And what this means is we are sent. Jesus said, as the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. God's heart has always been for the Jews. God's heart has always been for the world. God's heart is for the lost to know him. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. So we're not only responsible for how we respond to the gospel, for those who believe we're also to share the gospel, sharing the good news where we live, work, and play, being a gospel herald in our neighborhood and partnering to send gospel heralds to the nation. Here's the application. I'd love for you to write it down. Share Jesus everywhere. Share Jesus everywhere. We are to share the gospel locally. Let us send gospels ambassadors globally. Keller again, God has sent us with a message of salvation. He may send us overseas. He may send us into the pulpit. He may send us across the street to our neighbors. But ours are the beautiful feet bringing good news. Let me make this application practical about sharing Jesus everywhere. A practical way that we practice this idea here at Mill Creek is with the acronym BLESS. BLESS offers five simple missionary-like rhythms that we can practice every day. It's not magical. You don't have to work it sequentially. It just gives you some simple, low-hanging fruit ways that you can accomplish this application of sharing Jesus everywhere. If you're taking notes, B stands for be prayerful. We, we start on our knees in prayer knowing salvation is a work of the Holy Spirit and only the Spirit can actually save somebody. 
So we start praying for people. If you've never prayed for a person to come to know Jesus, start today. Start by praying, Jesus, would you save? And pick a person, have a friend. Doesn't know Jesus, start praying for them. B is be prayerful. L, listen. You know, listen and engage with whoever this person is. Ask good questions. E stands for eat with and invite them over to your home. Go to the coffee shop. Have an opportunity to interact with them. S is serve your neighbors. If they need something, jump in. If they ask you for help, cancel whatever your other plans were and help them. Be on the lookout for chances to serve your neighbors. And the final S, share Jesus. When the opportunity presents itself, share the gospel. God's love for them. Christ's death for sins. Here at Milk Creek, we want to have blessed friends. And, and, and for those of you who are overachievers, you want to have five blessed friends, by all means, go get it. But for the rest of us mere mortals, let's pick one. And I'd love to be able to ask the question of, of anybody in this church, whether you're three years old or 103 years old, who's your one? Who's your one that you're praying for? Who's your blessed friend? So that's a practical strategy of sharing Jesus locally. When it comes to the nations, when it comes to sharing the gospel globally, know this. Every dollar you give, we take a percentage of that and invest it in gospel ministry around the globe. But that's not the only way that you can share Jesus globally, there's another great opportunity for the nations that, that doesn't require you to move to another country. For as it come, turns out, the nations are coming to us. Get this, Carol Douglas, Faithful Mill Creekers, Faithful Mill Creeker here, she leads International Students Incorporated, ISI, and, and learned recently that right now there are 1,700 international students in Kansas City. Right now, 1,700 international students who need a friend. Somebody to welcome them. And, and get this, did you know that about 50% of current global leaders in the world studied here at the U.S. at some point? 50% of current global leaders had an impression on what America was like and who Americans are, how hospitable we are or aren't. What is more, 70% of international students never make it in a home. So Carol Douglas, you can reach out and talk to her. She wants to help get us connected with international students who are looking for a friend, just somebody to have a conversation with. Talk about a simple way to have a blessed friend. There may not be a more convenient time in our lives to share Jesus with neighbors and nations and right now. And if ISI isn't enough, did you know Another one of our Mill Creek missionaries, Jamie Gibson, is keeping us updated that Kansas City is going to be receiving Afghan refugees, evidently in the thousands. Afghan refugees, some are going to get settled here in Kansas City, and there's going to be opportunities then for us to reach out and care for these precious people who've been displaced, who've seen some of the worst of the worst. We can love and care for them, Mill Creek. God's heart is for the world. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Let's pray to the Lord of the harvest for more workers. This is God's heart is for the Jews. God's heart is for the world. Here's our final point, final application. God's heart for you. For, for anyone listening who's been thinking about the message of Christ, 
whether you've been mulling over Christ's death for sins for weeks or months, whether this is perhaps the very first time that you've ever heard God loves you, understand that just as God's heart is for the Israelites who had not called on Jesus, and just as God's heart is for the world, so God's heart is for you too. Though you've not yet called on Christ, God's salvation is good as gold. And if God calls you friend, God will get you all the way home. And in today's text, then, any of us who've not believed in Jesus, we're just like the Jews that Paul's arguing against. And, and friend, you won't be able to make the excuse one day at judgment that you never heard or you hadn't understood. Paul's argument in the text shows that just as the Jews are responsible for what they have heard, the saving message of Jesus Christ, so you are too. And friend, you won't be able to say to God that you didn't know. Whoa, 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 pastor. How is it that you know for sure that I can't make that excuse? Well, you're listening right now, aren't you? Like somehow God has brought you to listen to this sermon online, to hear the message of salvation. And I'm doing my best to herald the message that God desires to save you. So if you're comprehending this sermon then you have come face to face with the truth that God is righteous. You are a sinner. Before God, you are unrighteous. And there is nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. No good works, no obedience. Nothing can ever make yourself righteous before God. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. There now is a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Dear friend, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and he would give you the righteousness of God. God loves you. He'll pardon you. Call on him today. If you're here and you're still thinking to yourself, man, I don't really know for sure how to be saved. I don't really clearly understand how it works. Here it is simply. Isaiah 43, 7 teaches us, God created us for his glory. That is our purpose in life. We were made here to make much of God. But instead of making much of God, we have rejected God and made much of ourselves. And in doing so, we are sinners and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We are created for his glory, but we have fallen short of his glory. That's Romans 3.23. Furthermore, what Paul's explained in Romans 6 is that the wages of sin is death. And our punishment for rejecting Jesus is eternal hell. But Romans 6, 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Meaning Jesus would trade you places. Jesus would take your sin, give you his perfection. It is in Jesus then that we find the real truth. We find the real answer, the resolution to all our greatest questions for, of course, Jesus was really true, even though my college friend wouldn't grant it. What I wish 
I could have said to my college buddy then is, despite the apparent antimony of his statement, I wish I could have shown him that the idea that there is no ultimate truth is actually self-defeating. It's self-defeating because it's saying there is no biblical truth when in fact, excuse me, there is no ultimate truth when in fact it's a truth statement on its face. To, to say all truth is relative or to say there is no ultimate truth is to actually shoot yourself in the foot. It's a self-defeating statement that tries to smuggle a truth claim in and destroy all the others. But do you see how that statement, that philosophy actually is doing the very thing it says it can't do. And so the question to my college buddy would be, well, why do you believe that statement if there's no ultimate truth? Then that statement isn't true either. But biblical antimonies, as difficult as they might be to get our mind around, find their ultimate reconciliation in Jesus at the cross. For it's at the cross, of course, that God remains righteous and just by punishing those generation after generation who don't repent of their sins and trust on, trust on Christ. But it's at the cross as well where God is merciful and loving to those who repent. The Old Testament antimony that can baffle so many of us is actually reconciled at the cross where God's justice is satisfied by Jesus Christ's righteousness, where Jesus' sacrificial love is mercifully offered to you and I. Indeed, the cross satisfies God's justice and offers us God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his great love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's Paul's point. Romans 9 and 10, God's sovereign over salvation and we are responsible for our response. So believe in Jesus. If you're listening to this and you've never trusted in Christ, do it today. Believe in Jesus. God's arms were wide open to the Jews of Paul's day. God's arms are open to the world. God's arms are open to you right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Call on Christ today. God loves you. God loves his people. God loves the world. God wants you to be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to preach this sermon. I pray you would bless the recording, bless those who hear it. Pray they would believe in Jesus' name. Amen.